In times like these, there are several things that we can't be without. But one of those things is decisive and compassionate leadership. So if you're a marketplace leader, or if you're a community leader, or if you're just responsible for leading your family through these troubled times, or maybe you just want to be a leader at some point, Jesus has four words for you. And these four words have stopped me in my tracks on multiple occasions. And when I follow them, I'm a much better leader. When I don't follow them, I can gain the world but lose a bit of my soul. And I lose the respect of the people around me. We're in part six of this series called You're Not Far. And this is a story that should have died in Nero's Rome, but it didn't. It's the story of Jesus of Nazareth as told by Simon Peter, who dictated it to, and it was edited by John Mark. Uh, Mark traveled around with Peter for quite some time, and he either heard Peter tell all these stories about Jesus, or maybe he sat down with him specifically to record them altogether. Either way, Mark writes down Peter's account of Jesus, and it comes to us as the Gospel of Mark. But Mark wasn't writing the Bible. Mark was documenting Peter's experience with Jesus. And the theme of Mark's document that really has been the focus of this series comes to us in chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near, which means you're not far, but not because of what you've done to be near to God, rather because God has come near to each of us. And repent and believe the good news, Jesus said. And the idea of repenting wasn't a negative, it was meant as a positive, because repent meant to sort of turn and face this extraordinary new worldview uh, with this new set of values and embrace it for your life. And today, we're going to be in Mark chapter uh, chapter 8, rather, you can follow along in the Bible app. If you don't have the Bible app, head to bible.com app. Once you're in the app, head to the More Menu option in the bottom right corner, select Events, and you can find our church. We'll also have the notes and verses on the screen as well. Uh, again, previously in this series, Jesus accused the religious leaders from Jerusalem of being hypocrites. And Jesus said they were guilty of sort of elevating their own traditions and preferences above the actual commands of God. And then Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus, is, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee, and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter replied, You are the Messiah. Now, Jesus doesn't say, like, No, no, you're getting getting carried away, Peter, like that's too far. Verse 30, But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And next, Jesus is going to tell them more about this journey that they are on, and specifically that he is on, particularly as what, about what, they will hap- what will happen as they head to Jerusalem. Verse 31. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And this was so confusing to the disciples because they had just stated that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And the Messiah can't be killed, right? And now remember, this account that we're, gonna, that we're reading from comes from Peter through Mark, verse 32. As Jesus talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. That basically Peter says, like, Jesus, you need to stop with all this negativity. Which, this is quite interesting that Peter would include this moment in his account of the life of Jesus, uh, which, as we're going to see, actually ends up being an embarrassing moment for Peter. Verse 33, Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. In other words, Peter, you want a kingdom like all the other kingdoms of the world, but I'm not that king, and this is not that kingdom. 
That's not my kingdom, and that is not why I have come. And then to emphasize the point, he sort of stops to gather the crowd and get his disciples together. And Jesus wants everyone to hear what he's going to say next as they continue on their journey toward Jerusalem. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. And basically Jesus is saying, this isn't just going to be fun. This isn't going to be like a festival anymore. From now on, if you are going to follow me to Jerusalem, it's going to cost you something. Now, for us, the last part is symbolic, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. But for Jesus' first century audience, that was literal. They had seen and heard crucifixions. They had seen the aftermath of crucifixions. They had smelled crucifixions. And they may have lost a loved one to crucifixions. And Jesus says, from here on out, it's going to cost you something to follow me. And while this next statement sounds quite ominous from Jesus, it actually included an incredible invitation as well. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. And the thing is that we all want to hang on to our lives, right? But no matter how healthy you are, you're going to die. No matter how hard you work to preserve your life, you're eventually going to die. That Everyone loses their lives, no matter how well you take care of yourself. If you only live for yourself, though, you will only have yourself in the end. And then here's the invitation, verse 35. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. So at this point, Peter and the other disciples have a decision to make. Do we just sort of stay here near the Sea of Galilee and fish our lives away and die as old men? Or do we accept an invitation to die on purpose? And in this moment, uh, Jesus was inviting them, and I think he's inviting us, to live our lives with purpose and to lose our lives with a purpose. And so I think we have a decision to make as well. Will we be consumed with preserving our lives, lives that in the end we cannot preserve, we will not preserve? Or will we continue to say yes to our fear? And really fear invites us to to follow the path of self-preservation. That's something from Andy Stanley. That Jesus knew this and he gives us this warning that is really so relevant to us. Because if you follow the path of self-preservation long enough, you will neither preserve your life, nor will you have anything significant to show for your life. So the question Jesus was asking his first century followers, and he asks us as well, Will you follow me? And Peter likely never forgot this day because of the fear, the uncertainty, the confusion that came with it. It would have been much easier for him and the others to stay in Galilee, but they decided to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, which is why we actually even know the story of Peter at all and why his story is worth retelling. And for all of us, the decisions that we make each day will determine the stories we tell to our children and our grandchildren. We are writing that story every, with every single decision of every single minute of every single day. And in this pandemic, as easy as it would be for all of us to retreat to self-preservation, that simply means that we're going to actually lose the opportunity of doing something extraordinary in this season of life. Does your story since the pandemic only speak to your desire for self-preservation, or does it speak to something bigger? Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Uh, They were up on the north, uh, above the Sea of Galilee, and they continue through the region of Galilee, which is sort of around the Sea of Galilee. And they go down to the region known as Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. And and Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, but he he will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled into a house, 
Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. And again, Jesus is sort of instilling a kingdom of God value and ethic that's really so different and contrary to the values and ethics of the kingdoms of this world. And the kingdom of God is sort of an upside down kingdom that those who want to be first must take last place. And those who want to save their lives will lose their lives. But those who willingly sort of get in the back of the line and are willing to sacrifice their lives for others demonstrate what is most important in the kingdom of God. And the journey for Jesus and his disciples continues into Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were now on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. So they're on their way up to Jerusalem uh, with Jesus sort of leading the way, which amazes the disciples because after that warning that Jesus gave about suffering and death, Jesus is actually the one that's leading them walking into Jerusalem. He's not walking in the back of the group sort of afraid. And taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. And he warns the disciples about what they're going to face when they get to Jerusalem. Now, he's already done this like three times. And this time he gets pretty graphic and pretty specific. Verse 33, listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. And, and this continues to confuse his followers, and they obviously don't understand what's happening, as we're going to see next. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want, to, want you to do us a favor. Like, that's too bad about the mocking and the spitting and the flogging and the killing. Uh, that sounds pretty terrible, Jesus. But we need a favor from you. And Jesus is so incredibly patient with them. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Would you allow one of us to sort of sit at your right hand and your left hand, places of status and importance? Now notice they said, when you are seated, sitting on your glorious throne, which would likely be after all that mocking and spitting and flogging and all that killing stuff, right? Once you've established your kingdom, we want positions of authority, they're asking. But verse 38, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Like you still don't get it. And then a few verses later, verse 41, when the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Now think about this for a moment. They're not actually indignant or upset because James and John offended or disrespected Jesus. No, they're upset because they didn't think it's fair, they don't think it's fair, that James and John made this request before they could make the same request. And suddenly an argument breaks out among the ten disciples, all twelve disciples rather, about who is going to be second and third greatest in the kingdom of God. Like, we can't even imagine what was running through Jesus' mind at this point, because again, he's already covered this two or three times before, and yet he sits them down to go over this one more time before they get to Jerusalem. Verse 42, so Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Like, you know how the rulers in the Roman world and the secular world 
rule mercilessly for their own benefit. You see this and you know how the world works. And basically, those in positions of authority leverage their authority for their own benefit. And those with resources and influence leverage their resources and influence to gain even more resources and influence for themselves. Which is exactly why these disciples want to be number two and number three when Jesus establishes his kingdom. Like, we want to be at the top of the pyramid, they're saying. And then Jesus looks at them, and I think he looks at me and he looks at you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a leader of any kind, here are four words that should stop us in our tracks. And here are four words that will make you a better leader worth following. Mark chapter 10, verse 43. Not so with you. Like, I'm not the king of the kingdoms of this world. I'm a king over a different kingdom, he would say. And that's, how not, that's not how my kingdom is going to operate. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Instead of how you've seen it everywhere else, those in my kingdom will do it differently, Jesus says. It's fine to want to be great in the kingdom of God, and this is how to be great in the kingdom of God. Now, before they can object or give excuses, before we can give excuses, Jesus sort of takes away all of our excuses in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like James and John, like, you want to be great so that you'll be served, right? Like, do you think you're greater than me? For I didn't even come to be served, but to serve. Like, are there any more questions about this? Like, let's go to Jerusalem. But this was still so confusing. Like, give his life as a ransom, take up a, take up a cross. Like, these disciples, including Peter, probably thought it would have just been better to stay in Galilee. But then Peter tells us that they finally make their way all the way south to Jericho, which is really near Jerusalem, really close to Jerusalem. Verse 46, when they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left a town, a large crowd followed him. Now, there was a large crowd because there was almost always a large crowd following Jesus. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. Because after all, Jesus is an important rabbi with important things to do, uh, both of which were true. But this wasn't going to stop blind Bartimaeus. But he only shouted louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, Tell him to come here. That Jesus stopped because he wanted to help this man, but it would also further illustrate what his kingdom of God would look like. His sort of upside-down kingdom where the people with the power and the resources would use those resources and power to help those who had less power and possibly no resources. Now, now put yourself in this situation and think about being on your way to the most important appointment that you could have or, or maybe a meeting. And someone stops to ask you for help. And in this situation, Jesus is on his way not just to his most important appointment, but to the world's most important appointment. And he stops to talk with this man. And this is so convicting because like you, I'm busy. But here's one of the points from this interesting narrative. Sometimes following Jesus requires stopping. And so they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. And then Jesus says something that, that almost seems like he's insulting the very person that he's talking to. These statements, though, and actually there's quite a few of them, uh, I think these statements actually give credibility to the accounts of the life of Jesus 
Because to be honest, who would make this up? Verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. Like maybe Jesus asked this question with sort of James and John's request in his mind. Uh, we aren't quite sure. But blind Bartimaeus' request is not to sit on Jesus' right or left. My rabbi, the blind man, said, I want to see. Interestingly, this also would have been a great thing or a better thing for James and John to request instead of requesting to sit on Jesus' right and left. If James and John and maybe the rest of the followers would have asked to see and understand what Jesus was talking about, maybe they would have gotten what Jesus was trying to say all along. And this is really a great prayer for all of us to pray regularly. Heavenly Father, help me to see as you see. Help me to see me the way that you see me. Help me to see others, my family, my neighbors, this church, all the other people around me, the way that you see them. Because if I could see as you see, I would be far more inclined to do as you say. If I could see as you see, I'd be less inclined to see life the way the kingdoms of this world see life. That obedience to God might be a sacrifice, but it is also an investment in this invisible kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, Go, for your faith has healed you. And instantly the man could see. And he followed Jesus down the road. That this formerly blind man is following Jesus towards Jerusalem, where sacrifice and suffering await them. Now, we're going to pick up this story right there next time. But I want to sort of quickly circle back to these four words. Not so with you. That what would it look like in your world, in your home, at work, in the community, to become a not-so-with-you person? Because when you choose to follow Jesus, he will lead you in this direction. And let's be honest, even if you aren't a Jesus follower right now, you are drawn to people who leverage their power and their resources, not just for their benefit, but for the benefit of others. And Jesus is going to lead all of us who have any kind of influence, any kind of leadership. He's going to lead us to leverage our power and our resources for the benefit of those with less power and fewer resources. This is always the direction following Jesus leads to, because this is the direction the kingdom of God leads to. This is simply just another application of the law of Christ, to love others as we have been loved. And when you leverage your resources for others, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And when you live life from that posture, you're living for a different kind of kingdom. And we're going to get to this next time, but Peter sort of finds himself in the back of the crowd watching this play out in real time as he watches his rabbi give his life as a ransom for many. And it would be several days later, though, before Peter could sort of put this all together. But Peter would understand that Jesus was indeed a different kind of king who introduced a different kind of kingdom. So, to become a not-so-with-you person, I think it really begins with a simple yet very challenging question. What can I do to help? If you have any kind of influence or leadership, you probably should write that down and make some sort of habit of asking this question every single day. Because most of us are accustomed to other people asking us this question. But if I'm going to lead like Jesus, I must be the one asking this question because this is the question that Jesus asked. This is why Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. What can I do to help? How can I loan you my strength? How can I leverage my resources for your need? And when you leverage your power, and when you leverage your resources for the benefit of those with less power and fewer resources, you are not far from the kingdom of God. When you leverage your resources for others, especially for those with less power and fewer resources, you are not far from the kingdom of God. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus' example. Thank you that you didn't just talk about this. You didn't just um, tell us to do this. But you gave us Jesus as an example to demonstrate what does this actually look like. Because if left to our own, we no doubt would have gotten it wrong. And we can see that even as you demonstrated this and, and talked about it and taught about it so many times to the disciples, they didn't get it. And no doubt there's so many times that we don't get it. And we miss what you're trying to say or what you're trying to show us. So God, would you help us to see clearly what you might want to show us? The ways that we can leverage our power and our resources, and especially maybe for those of us who don't feel like we have any power or resources. But God, we do. Just simply by being Americans many times, we have so much power and resources. But God, for those of us who maybe aren't sure, would you help us to see what we have that we could use and leverage for other people, for the benefit of others, not just for accumulating stuff for ourselves? and helping ourselves. God, would you help those who who know their resources? They know what they have. And maybe, God, would you help activate them? Would you help them to, to look for opportunities? Would you help them to ask you to give them eyes to see the opportunities they have to leverage their resources and their influence for others? We want to do this because we want to live according to your kingdom, God. We want to do this to reflect you, Jesus, to all those around us who, who are maybe hurting, have been sort of jaded by the church and jaded by other Christians who don't live this way. Would you help us to live this way to help draw them and attract them to you, Jesus? Not to us, but to you. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.